Rock and Roll's Greatest Failure. Call Baby That's Really Me by John Otway. Read by John Otway. Call Baby That's Really Me. Chapter 23 The Otway career under the guidance of Maurice Bacon, was a lot more sensible and a lot less frivolous, as Morris had seen his own band, Love Affair, travel to and from the dizzy heights of pop stardom. He was the same age as Otway and Kendall, but in those years he had done and seen a lot more in the music business. One by one, poor John was stripped of the trappings of success he had so recently acquired. First to go was the new Otway band, You can't afford to pay yourself, never mind them, said Morris. Look, if it makes you feel better, I'll fire myself first before I fire the others. And so Morris left his employment as a drummer. Next to go were John's press agents, Rogers and Cowan. They had done what Otway had wanted of them over the few months he was their client. Along with the Paul McCartney party, John had been invited to many other do's including Shirley Bass's 25 Years in Show Business Bash, where John managed to invite Shirley to his when that came up. There were many others too. People who regularly seen these things, doing very little apart from posing and drinking the champagne, are often referred to in the press as liggers. One month, Howie did this so regularly that one of the trendier magazines actually made him their Ligger of the Month. Rogers and Cowan had also got John on the TV programme Star Games, which featured celebrities from all walks of show business competing in various athletic activities. And Otway had done quite well as a member of the Rockstars team in the obstacle course. Sadly, as Morris pointed out, John was now in no position to justify keeping them. And they had to go, along with John's position as biggest ligger. John's star car the Bentley was put up for sale and his old school friends and part-time chauffeurs became just old school friends again. That was the saddest part for me, remembers Chris France. John only used the car about once a fortnight when he wasn't on tour. If I drove him, then he would let me keep the car the rest of the time. It was the best thing I can ever remember for impressing girls. They used to like getting picked up from home in it and even their parents used to call me the The nice boy with the nice car. After the Bentley was sold, I used to pick them up in a car only a little better than the psychedelic A40, and the word nice ceased to be used as a description of me or the car. John was allowed to keep his big photo checkbook, but you can only write them out for love and kisses to female fans. If you write them out for anything more than that, they'll bounce. And that's not very star-like, is it? Morris explained. About the only tangible thing Otway was able to retain from his many weeks of stardom was his flat. But, as we shall see, even that had to go eventually. At a small party, round the Otway flat, someone discovered an unopened bottle of champagne in the fridge. As it was passed around, a rather sad voice said, I was saving that for my next hit. To which someone replied, Didn't you know, champagne doesn't last that long. Morris banned John from the Polydor offices. I've been in there to talk to them, and you're driving them mad. I'll concentrate on them, 
and you concentrate on what you're good at. Though it would have been interesting to know at this point just what Morris thought John was good at. After sorting out the financial mess, as well as he could, Morris then attacked the state of John's career. The first and most important thing was records. You are going to have to do something good recording-wise before I can even begin to look at America, he said, and went about sorting out some good musicians and a good producer. The producer both Polydor and Morris were happy with was Neil Innes. He was the right sort of person to produce John, as he had a flair for humour, having been in the Bonzo Dog Band, and having produced the music for the Ruttles and various other Monty Python spin-off projects. John had no idea. He didn't know what a good producer was any more than he knew what a good musician was. But he and Neil liked each other and the combination looked as if it could well work. Between them, Morris and Neil sorted out the musicians for the next LP and managed to put together a formidable array of talent. The lineup was as follows. Drums. Charlie Morgan, who was at this time in Kate Bush's band. Subsequently, he would become one of the best session drummers in the country, played on numerous hits and appeared at Live Aid. Bass. Paul Martinez, another session player who later joined Robert Plant's band. Keyboards. Morgan Fisher, originally with Love Affair and then Mott the Hoople. He had his own band, Morgan, and after leaving Otway, he joined Queen. Guitar. Ollie Holsell. Kevin Ayres guitarist as well as a session player. The American rock magazine Rolling Stone had his name amongst the top ten guitarists in the world. As Otway went into Chapel Studios to record the next album, both Polydor and Morris could be forgiven for thinking that Otway was once more back on track. Neil Innes did a good job with John, and even the title of that resulting LP, Where Did I Go Right?, suggests the faith everyone had in this new, polished-sounding Otway. Frightened and Scared was one of the wimp songs played faster on the LP, and it was picked to be the next single. John was a man of ideas. Whilst recording that album in the studio, he had been singing along with the backing track of the recording before he had added his voice. Then a thought struck him. I'm more of a live performer than a recording artist. Wouldn't it be good if you could sell these records without my voice on? Then I could turn up and stand between the stereo speakers and add both the voice and the performance live whenever anyone wanted to play it. Within ten minutes of thinking this, he realised that it was an impractical idea, but it was original. There must be a way of using it. Eventually, he reckoned that not every record should be like that, but maybe a couple of hundred. Morris was always good with Otway's mad ideas and schemes, since he appreciated that his success had probably more to do with those than it did with his talent. You don't need to do a couple of hundred. Three is ample, he explained, after Otway had told him this surefire way of charting his next single, and then set about organising the live-in-your-living-room promotion. When Frightened and Scared was released, the cover of every copy of the record bore the message If when you play this record you cannot hear John's voice, ring this number and Otway will stand in your living room and add them live. 
As a selling exercise, this little gimmick did not work too well. Most of the people who bought John's record had seen him live and knew only too well the destructive havoc Otway could create on stage. It was the main reason for going to see him. While these people were more than happy to watch this sort of behaviour on stage and be amused at the clearing up job he left the roadies with after the show, having Otway do this sort of thing in their own house was a different matter. It was almost as if saying, buy my record and I'll wreck your home. As a promotional exercise, it could have been quite good had it not been for a piece of bad luck. Morris felt that if he could get some major TV exposure and not wake cavorting around some unfortunate person's front room, the effect on sales could be similar to the old grey whistle test appearance. ITV News are thinking about doing a piece on it for the humorous bit that they put at the end of the news programme, Morris announced one day. This was perfect. Huge exposure that would have made the whole thing worthwhile. Sadly, ITV rang back. We'd have loved to have done it, they explained. But we checked with the Musicians' Union. And what John is doing is singing to a pre-recorded backing track. The MU don't allow us to show that on TV. So we can't go ahead with the item. Of the three possible living rooms that John could have sung in, two of them, or at least their occupants, rang to say that they had upon their turntables a vocalist record. The first of these turned up in East Kilbride, and Polydor Records flew John and an entourage of press and promotions people up to Scotland to do the promised performance. That was really odd, that, says Otway. We turned up in this big black limousine to this small house on the outskirts of Glasgow, and this young guy, who bought the record, took us in. The front room was full of people from the local papers, the local radio, his family and the five people I bought with me. He introduced me to his mum, his grandmother and his sister and her baby. The local paper wanted a shot of me singing to the baby on my knee. So we did that. And then his mum had put on this bit of a buffet, so we ate that. And then there were a few more photos and an interview with the radio. It seemed like everyone was putting off the moment when I was to sing. I was used to getting up on stage in front of people performing, but the thought of standing in the middle of that living room singing was making me feel really nervous. It seemed to be making everybody else nervous too. They seemed to be looking at me as if to say, oh my God, he's going to sing in a minute, and then thinking of something else to do to delay the performance as long as possible. In the end, it couldn't be put off any longer. The record was played and I did the singing bit. I did a couple of somersaults over the settee and swung on the curtains a bit, but nothing was damaged and they all clapped at the end, possibly because the ordeal was finally over. Another record turned up in the south of London and John and his entourage turned up there to give a similar rendition of the song. And the third record surfaced at a boarding school, where Otway was banned from singing live by the headmaster. Not enough people purchased themselves a chance to have this sort of personal performance and the record was another flop. There was only one thing for it. John would have to do yet another tour to promote the new LP. No Bentleys, chauffeurs or polishers accompanied this tour. More importantly though, the whole band apart from the drummer agreed to go out on the road with John to promote the new record. It was a good tour and even made money. 
John did not like travelling in the minibus, but he did appreciate the fact that he could pay the rent after the tour was over. The band was the tightest and most professional ever. The first show was at the venue in Victoria, London, an old converted cinema with a very high arch above the stage. Recalling his wish to be lowered onto the stage by helicopter while the band played the opening chords of the hit, John found a long rope and decided to lower himself the 50 or so feet to the stage as a form of grand entrance. Great idea, said Paul Martinez, the bass player. And Ollie and I can jump down from this scaffolding at the same time. It sounded like a great idea, so they rehearsed it. Otway was fine. He came tearing down the ropes and then removed the top layer of skin from his hands in the process. Ollie took one look at the leap from the scaffolding and decided to leave the acrobatics to John and Paul. Paul leapt perfectly on time and hit the ground at the same time as Otway, perfectly on cue for the first lines of the song. Unfortunately, he also broke his leg. That looks great, said Morris to Paul, who was writhing on the floor. I think we can go with that. They couldn't go with that. Paul did that concert and most of the subsequent shows seated, his leg in plaster raised upon a chair. However good this show was, and it was good, it did more for Otway as a loony stage performer than it did as a recording artist. The new LP did not even venture near the album charts, and at the end of that tour, Otway was ready for his next major career move. Now can we go to the States? he asked. (laughs) 